My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge from the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge so that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Our first issue is available for pre-order now and features stories from around the world on the future of design, the realities of humanity, and adventures to truly wild places. Featuring editions from Chris Burkhardt, Alex Stroll, Wen Wenyi, Richard Daney, Lauren Moores, Brian Collins, Jocasta LaChapelle, and more. Each iteration also features recommendations on some of the best gear, tech, and accessories out now, as well as the best restaurants, hotels, and locations around the globe, all tested by our team. This publication will always be limited to the first run of printing for each individual issue. We are selling the first 1,000 issues at a discounted rate, but they're almost gone, so make sure you order soon. Today, I am joined by none other than Alex Stroll. For more than a decade, photographer and entrepreneur Alex Stroll has pioneered the visual style of the outdoor industry. A renowned force across all of his business pursuits, Stroll's marketing campaigns garner clients' audiences in the millions, while his critically acclaimed photography workshops pass down unrivaled experience and insight into tens of thousands of aspiring amateurs. Lauded by the likes of National Geographic, Outside Magazine, and Gentleman's Journal, Stroll's influence in the direction of outdoor media is unparalleled. Drawing inspiration from the wildest alpine environments, Stroll is as comfortable in the northern Rocky Mountains of his home in Whitefish, Montana, as he is diving off the shores of icy North Atlantic archipelagos. The result is an immersive visual style that blurs the boundaries of life and work and of humans and nature. His timeless style and eye for subtle, authentic moments transcends industries from local ski brands to the world's foremost watchmakers. Please enjoy this conversation between myself and Alex Stroll. Life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. Alex, thank you so much for coming on my show. Thanks, Rob. For sure. Always. Um, and so I start every podcast with the same question, which is, what is the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning? The first thing I think about when I wake up in the morning is I want to sleep more. <laughs> is that always the same thing? Stop or being brutally honest. <laughs> no, I always want to keep going. But... At the same time, I understand I woke up for a reason, so I'm probably done with sleeping. But my initial thought is that then after that comes, is this a day where I get a breakfast or I don't get a breakfast? I've been trying to fast for the last few years, intermittent fast some days. So I'm like, damn it, it's a Tuesday today. Actually, today was a Wednesday, so I didn't get breakfast. So yeah, then this is the next thought is like, do I get a breakfast or not? And... And with, with fasting, uh, did you do it for health reasons or body reasons or just to give it a try? Because I, I think most people that I talk to nowadays fast. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's very trendy. To be honest. I think um, I <laughs> eat too much. So I was trying to find a way to eat less. Yes. Not because I'm trying to lose weight or anything. I'm actually trying to gain weight. But I thought, I don't need all this stuff, you know, right from the morning. And then it makes me double hungry for lunch. That's what the reason is really that. It's just bit of less yeah and I, as someone that's been fasting now uh, almost every day for a, a few years i think i found that um personally like it's it's not not just that like you do uh eat less and at least in my experience and your experience but i just i just feel better like that mental clarity in the morning it seems to be a bit more 
clear. If that makes sense. I know you're a big coffee guy. So, so when you, when you consider fasting, do you still drink your coffee or do you hold off on the coffee? There's no coffee in the morning ever. Interesting. You want to expand on that? Yeah. I mean, yeah, for the, like the four nerds that are into coffee for sure. <laughs> it's uh... I mean, really into coffee. I mean, you know, I know everybody drinks coffee, but it's drinking and being really into it. It's so different. So I don't have coffee until after lunch because I want to not be, I don't want my mind to go too fast in the morning. I feel like coffee, even after years of drinking it, still one, one Cortado, one espresso, one Americano, like, you know, a good dose of coffee gets my brain going a little too much. So I like to execute on it in the afternoon. So I just keep it for the afternoon. And that sounds like a pretty logical first step, given that most people I know are, you know, hyper-caffeinated by the time I talk to them the first thing in the morning. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the morning, you know, your brain is so innocent and it's so still kind of soft. So I keep it in that state and I do all my creative writing in the morning, actually. Interesting. Do you do any other creative work besides writing in the morning? Do you edit your photos then or do you no. plan or... No, just creative writing. I have my note that I open and I diving into the a topic that sounds interesting. Interesting. And then and do, you ever, do you ever share these um, writings or no? No, no, they're just for me. Uh, perhaps one day, but I don't think they're of much quality because it's a lot of stream of consciousness. Interesting. You know, I, I think that there's a, 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 a desire nowadays for people to witness more of that like that it's it's almost a bit of witnessing but the the inner workings of someone's brain i think are so beautifully amazing right and i think that the, oh, stream, I agree of, with you. the stream of consciousness writing that you're doing i think is like such a, a rare and intimate insight into someone else's brain um i i personally like i i, I could see you releasing some kind of anthology of your work and you know, pair, pairing it with these notes over the years, I think that would be, you know, fascinating to not only show like your development as a photographer and an artist, but also your development as like, you know, a thinker and a human being, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be, yeah, it'd be a bit tedious, I think, to read. But what <laughs> I, perhaps the, the best next step I found with it, I've been thinking about it too. So I think you're right. It's, I've been... I've been keeping a journal on every little expedition I do, every trip I do. And every night I religiously write my journal for the day on paper. And I have this notepads. I'm just note, little notebooks I'm accumulating. And um, I might start putting some of these bits in the books that I make. I would, I would love that. And, and we'll dive into some of your books um, that I fancy uh, in a little bit, but you know, I, uh, as you, as you well know, um, am launching a magazine alongside yep. this podcast and you will be featuring um, some work um, that you did with, um, is, it, is it Jeremy Villet? Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, Jeremy Villet, yep. And, and so I guess my next question for you as someone who's still working and building this this first issue is if if you had stream of consciousness thought or expedition journal from that trip, do you, do you think it would be an interesting case study and a test to kind of put those two things together? Oh, we're taking decisions live. Well, it's not. But yeah, <laughs> you can course. say yeah, no. Yeah, You're I allowed got to. notes from that. Yeah. Cool. No, I got, oh yeah, I got notes for that. Yep. Um, and and so yeah, we'll they obviously we'll talk about this offline. That's fine. I'll happily um transpose it. I'll do my. I'll do it as a challenge to myself to see how good my my reading French. That's my thing about French is that, um, as we were talking before, like I have some family from France. I was more fluent when I was younger. I'm less fluent now. 
Um, and I was spent a month in Paris last year and uh, mm. I was in the 16th and I've learned that my speaking is terrible. Um, my listening is pretty good and my reading is the best. Um, and I don't know why that's oh, really? how my mind retained it, but like I could pick up Le Petit Prince and, and read through most of it, understanding what was going on. But if you ask me to like, um, you know, have a conversation in French about the, you know, <laughs> waxing poetic, uh, you know, English tenor of, of the writing style. No, no way. <laughs> I'd be like, c'est bon, c'est trop bon, you know. C'est bon, arrêtez. Um, there we um and I, I think that's fascinating so so i i think before we dive deep on a few of these things we've talked about um most of you that have picked up most of the listeners that have picked up this podcast probably know who you are um and probably know you as a photographer or know you from instagram um but for the people that don't um how would you describe the work you do now to your eight-year-old self Mm, eight-year-old self. This is very timely because I'm about to become a dad in the next few days. So I've been thinking about stuff like that. So that's very timely of you, Ram. I think that I would say I am the guy who goes around and is interested and is very curious and just happens to bring a camera to document these things he's curious about. Fascinating. And is that what you always wanted to be? Is that, is that, or that just kind of fall into your lap? So this notion of being is very North American, I think. Fair. You know, I yeah, correct. I've, I've lived in a few, <laughs> in different hemispheres, right? Yeah. So I, I have, I carry different cultures in me. Uh, and I was raised, you know, by French parents and the French family. So the being, not being is, is interesting. Uh, you know, most people here, they don't live to work. They work to live. It's yes. Different. So, you know, people's job growing up wasn't even my dad's, my mom's, you know, was their job. They liked it. They just did it with pride. And that was it. The weekend was very different. So this whole, I respect, the, understand the being, you know, um, I don't know that I thought about what it wanted to be. It's more like I, innocently happened to end up doing this it was never like a very clear decision i love that and and would you and not to make this all about instagram but i, I you had a pretty meteoric rise on instagram um i think it was like five or six years ago is when it really kind of sprung up and i actually remember um yeah the, the day i um, I had been following you for, I think on and like I've, I've deleted old accounts and moved around, but I think on and off, I followed you since <laughs> I was in college. Um, so it's been like about eight years now. Um, and I oh, remember there was <laughs> no problem. I remember there was a time, I think it was 2016. Um, I'd already been following you, but Chris Burkhardt reposted one of your photos, which is also the cover of the alternate living book volume one. Um, it's like, I think it's this yeah. cabin somewhere in, is, is it Norway? Is that cabin? Um, yeah, yeah, in the Lofoten Islands. Which, which I think Chris is there right now, actually. Um, and yeah. uh, that was the first time I've ever seen him repost someone else's work on his page. Um, so do, do you, I don't, I don't, do, I don't know if you guys have a really close relationship or, or how that kind of came to be, but it seemed like really personal. It seemed to, you know, it was the first time I'd really seen him be like, Hey, like this is someone you really have to pay attention to. And I was really happy to see it because i i've been following you for a while and i was just like more people need to see this work confirmation yeah i mean yeah. i can share a bit of uh, the sort of we can do a little story time brief story time of uh, the beginnings of of 
Instagram. But yeah, let's do it. Essentially, in 2014, uh, to speak of Chris, you know, because I, he yeah. he wasn't on Instagram, he started getting on it. I'd been on there for three years already, so that he started. You know, we started talking about photography and what you know he was trying to to do. And funny enough, when I was in my bedroom as a teenager in France, uh, I remember coming across this. You know, ten years ago, what teenager? Oh my god, yeah. well, fifteen years ago. I saw this guy who had won some sort of photo contest and it was Chris. I was like, sick, you know, um, That's awesome. I saved some of the photos on my computer. I wasn't taking photos seriously or anything. So just save these photos on my computer. And it's like, that's cool. You know, that's, that's nice. That's all. And then didn't think more of that. It's like, that's cool. I don't know why I ended up liking the photos. And, um, when Chris started, he went for a circle, full circle when Chris jumped on Instagram and was, you know, trying to establish himself because he was already very established as a photographer on magazines and he was trying to jump into this new medium. So yeah, I ended up connecting with him in those years. Um, and I was really surprised because most, most people in photography were a bit more like of the lone wolf mentality back then. So, you know, competition is bad and you don't want to help anybody. Right. It's just like, yeah, you're out there for yourself. Right. And it's still the case in some instances. That's fine. Uh, but Chris was the opposite. You know, it's like I was really surprised by his generosity and his transparency. And everybody I met through Instagram actually was like that, like very transparent. Like, yeah, yeah, it's the job I did for X, Y, Z. But why he's the contact, hit him up, whatever. Everybody was very open. Yeah. So he was like, "Oh, you just made a new book, sick. Um, send me a photo. I'll, I'll, I want to talk about it." It's like, wow, okay. So <laughs> I never really would I even have dared to ask. You know, can you talk about my book? Yeah. So that's how it all happened. That's amazing. Um, and so talking yeah. about the book, Alternative Living, Volume 1, I should add, hope, I'm, I'm hoping for Volume 2 someday, but um, I don't know if that's in your plans me or too, not. Me too, me <laughs> too. I know, I, know, I know having a kid is probably a bit of a, um, an, an impedance to, to creating new books, probably. But um, Yeah, the problem is that I set it up as a very challenging one. Too ambitious. Yeah. It's about islands. So I've already begun. I've already Ooh. have a few of the stories, but I need way Got more. It. Understood. So, yeah. Um. And this opens another question I'll save for after this next little bit, which is, you know, that that so this book to people that are, are unaware um, is a book that basically uh, takes into account these amazing places around the world. I think you you do like the, the Dolomites, there's the Alps, um, there's some parts of like uh, Scandinavia, um, and yeah. it basically is like a good collection of these places that i would love to spend time and it seems like a lot of the like a couple of your youtube videos a couple of the places on instagram like you're the one who's constantly seeking these really remote places that most people wouldn't even consider uh living and you like dream mm -hmm. of traveling to them right yeah yeah you summed it up pretty well <laughs> uh and, and some of them yeah, i'm just like I, I i think that you know you did an expedition recently with um paying students right where you where you went to one of these um huts or cabins yeah in the pyrenees yeah yeah do you want to talk more about that yeah i mean it's very simple i want people to experience the things that i've experienced so um what's really hard in, in photography and travel is the first trip because most people don't have time to do the first trip yeah you work in i don't know tech company in amsterdam and you have x you know 
the Dutch are pretty good in vacation days, but let's assume you're in the US, you know, you have a couple of yeah. weeks of vacation time. If you're, you're lucky. lucky. Yeah. If you're lucky. So <laughs> you don't want to go risk it all on this random idea you've had on the magazine. Like, oh, it looks like there's something good to do in, uh, you know, I don't know, random name island there. So you're not going to risk it and you're going to go for something more established. Oh, you know what? We're going to Jackson, Wyoming. Because that's Teton National Park. Great. It's going to work out. So yeah. people don't want to take risk, and I respect that. But when you have built your life to have a bit more time to do the, all these mistakes and to experiment, then it's you can actually, it's my job and my duty to go seek out these places. Yeah. And I, I love that. I think, I think it's, it's, it's goes back to one of my beliefs of, you know, you have to give yourself time to figure out what you want. Um, you know, I have a friend right now who works, she works in finance here in the United States and works, you know, 70, 80 mm. hour weeks and can take vacation. Mm -hmm. It's it's one of those open vacation policies where like, there's no limit of time, but they definitely like, that's great. It's, it's like, but, but it's also that social construct of like, how much time are you taking off? Like they still require you to do some meetings, even you're on vacation. Like you get to make up the work you miss. So it's oh, not really, deep. it's not really, you know, like unlimited vacation. Looks good on um, paper. It does. Looks great on paper. But the, the the point that I was making to her is like she was trying to figure out what her next step in life was. And I argued that you won't be able to figure out what's next until you leave what you're doing now. Um, which I think goes back to a lot of people's fears of, of not having constant income. And I think that there's this quote, I forget who said it, but like the two greatest addictions in life are heroin and a monthly salary, right? Um, <laughs> and I think it's true, right? Because I think people people grow comfortable and they realize like, oh yeah, I could take time off and go travel to these unknown places and maybe fulfill my passion of becoming like a photographer, or maybe spend more time in the studio, become a ballet dancer or, or, or in the kitchen and become a chef or who, who knows what, but people are willing to unwilling to say like, I needed to sacrifice potentially some long-term income and some relationships, especially with work in the United States. Like if you leave some jobs, regardless if it was on good terms, like it's always a bad term thing. Right. Mm -hmm. I think is our obsessive culture with work and status and money. Um, and that's why I kind of, I love the idyllic comparatively culture of, you know, Europe, right? Where my friends over there, they're like, where are we going for vacation on all of August? You know, like where I, I took, time, you know, a year off to take care of my kid who's two, you know, like I, and it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's, 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 I spent a lot of time in Denmark and I think they, they, they have it nailed where it's just like, oh, I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to take two years off and my job will welcome me back and they'll be happy to have my counsel in the meantime if they need me. But otherwise, like I'm focusing on my family and my happiness and that allows me to be better at work. And that idea is just so beautiful. <laughs> it's just so lost here in this country, unfortunately. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, we just end up building our own prisons either way. So sort of being yeah. careful about that and resetting and making hard decisions. So... This actually brings, I don't know what my mind thought about this, but there's this fascinating piece I read recently talking about how modern social media is a panopticon, right? Or the style of prison, I think that was popularized in French, or basically like every cellmate could see every other cellmate. So basically there's like massive spherical <laughs> detention center. Um, and basically this idea that yeah. like... Post a, it's kind of a apocalyptical vision of it. Like yes, it. yes, but but the but the idea being that like you know even though there are no rules, like people get canceled or destroyed on a daily basis for just saying the wrong thing or not understanding a topic and talking about it, right? Um, mm -hmm. and I, it was a really interesting point talking about that, where it's like, do you, do you do you think that social media is trending in a positive direction, and do you think that it's something that um, if not could be saved? Hmm. 
Well, I don't think it's the fault of social media. I think it's the fault of society. Social media is only, it's only a reflect of people using it, right? It's just a tool. Like the Fair. computer doesn't care what you do with it. So <laughs> it's, a good point. it's the behavior, right? This is the algorithm just learns from you. If you behave a certain way, the algorithm will learn from your way. And then it's that it kind of goes off and does it. So it's just a reflection of our action. And um, it's it's easy to blame social media, but it's our usage of it. And it's, I mean, a reflection yeah, of ourselves. This, yeah. Yeah. This phone, this machine that can do everything, it's the greatest thing and the worst thing, right? Yes. Boredom so, is, is, is no longer there, but also infinite. You know, I, I think uh, Naval Ravikant says it well when he says that the modern diseases are diseases of abundance, right? You have too much sugar, too much social media, too much, too much screen time, you're right? And versus like even 100 years ago, if you were lucky to get, you know, a piece of sugar or a piece of information or, or you know, access to something as amazing as like a movie theater, that'd be amazing, right? But now it's like you can sit at home in your bed and eat unlimited amounts of terrible food and just stare at YouTube all day. And a lot of people do that, you know. Um, <laughs> Not what us. is it the the comedian who called it uh the internet is a little bit of everything all of the time what is his name? he made this this, uh, this album but yeah it's um that's a good way of putting it me. but yeah that really sums it up <laughs> yeah um I, I think beyond finding you know beyond finding peacefulness it's also a lack of concentration that it encourages which i think is even harder yes. like we lose the ability to concentrate on anything yeah I mean, and i th- sorry good to do no, it's just when's the last time you you have an idea, you're like, I'm going to reach out to this person. You open Instagram to DM this person then end up on the explore page because that's the last page that was open or something. And then yeah, too late. You know, the, I forgot <laughs> completely what I was trying to do. So then I have to force myself. Well, I force myself to drop the phone away from me and like, let me think who it was. <laughs> so, just, so it's really built to distract us. Correct. And, and I think, I mean, the, the people that are making these algorithms uh, and, and building these systems to make them more addictive are really the real people with power, especially in the world right now, right? If, if there's someone who can silence someone or remove an account or make more information more relevant or, you know, basically change the algorithm to, to show different things um, and make it more addictive in the process, like those are the people that have, you know, a ton of power in modern day society, almost a scary amount of power. Oh yeah, surely. Um, so, going back to one, your point, you were saying when you first saved those photos of you know Chris, Chris's work when you were, I'm so I'm guessing you were sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, somewhere in that range. Yeah, fifteen. Yeah, somewhere in there. Yep. So, what was the catalyst for you that kind of got you into you know? I I know you kind of view yourself as someone that brings a you're an you're an adventurist that someone that brings a camera along with you and happens to you know record what you're seeing but when did you really start taking it more seriously to 2000 probably when i i mean i've told this story a million times yeah but you know it was when i when i licensed this photo to microsoft for the uh, surface campaign Mm -hmm. you know i just started taking this photo and for fun you know, I was still in college and then Microsoft licensed it for a lot of money. <laughs> and I ended up traveling with, with Andrea, my, my wife now, for a year with that and just building an international portfolio just for fun. And so you, you bring up Andrea and we were talking about a few things like maternity leave and, and I kind of want to wrap in this next segment. And I know you're about to, you're a few days away from becoming a father, right? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. When and heirs will <laughs> probably be a father. That's very exciting. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's like one of those things. Like I have a friend who recently had a kid, and he's like, "It doesn't seem real until you like handed this little being, and you're like, oh, 'Oh, I'm not only responsible for this, but this is half of me.' You know? So, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, can really quickly. But uh, recently, you you rode across. You rode a bike across France, um, and it looked like you were yeah. burying time capsules for your newborn daughter. Do you want to talk about what inspired that and what, what's in each time capsule? Yeah, for sure. I can't say what is in each time capsule. Sure, but like, unless yeah, yeah, unless we keep this private. Uh, we're not keeping this if private. If she hears it, if she hears it, no. But if she hears this podcast, then she's not going to want to come on this ride with me because like, I already know what's in your capsule, Dad. Sure. You know what I mean? so, sure. So keep it a surprise. I can't say what's in there. D- please don't. Though. Yeah, for her. Yeah, for yeah. Her, like, for her sake. I yeah. can hint to what it is. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just knew that I woke up one day before Christmas and I was like, you know what? I want to ride across France. It was really how it happened. Uh, you know, after thinking if it was a day with breakfast or not breakfast, I was like, you know what? I want to ride, well, I want to ride, ride across France. So that was Natural like, logical oh. next perception. Just, yeah. 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 Sure. Sure. Then I just shoved it into my memory. Uh, somewhere in there and put it in my notes on my computer and then one day running i was like like two months ago three months ago i was running and i was like this is such a boring run (laughs) and then i somehow was thinking you know about this riding across friends and i was like why would i do that you know how is that going to make me a better dad because that's one of my objectives is to be a good dad and i was like you know what it's not gonna it's just a self selfish pursuit Vanity, riding across France, it's fun. You want to just be on your bike and do your thing. Doesn't work. And uh, I was like, what would he, you know, what is it that I like about biking? Well, it's really just having the air on my face and being with people I like. Great. Like, and then somehow I was like, what if I did this ride in 20 years? You know, 2042 has got a good ring to it. 2022, 2042. Yeah. I could do it with uh, my daughter when she's 20. Assuming she likes bikes. Okay. Well, that's the thing. Is that what yeah. if she doesn't? Yeah, I need something to entice her to do it. Correct. And that's how, through series of ideas, like you know, a few days of talking to people, like I could just bury time capsule. I didn't even know it was called a time capsule. You in the U.S. we love giving names to everything, so yes. it's like great time capsule. We'll call because yeah. it, it has no name in France. People are like, do you want to do what? So, <laughs> yeah um, we're unfortunately not as cool as the germans who make up these long complicated words to describe feelings or emotions oh, or or like da- i think the danish you know like the Kiga or you know like different i i i, yeah, yeah. I wish we did that instead of doing like we're, this is a snuffleupagus it's like what is that it's like oh it's a purple monster <laughs> <laughs> that's how it came about really and you know i wanted to have a reason to do this right again with with her and i was like i'll hide some things because when you become a parent, it seems like, I don't know, it seems that you become a different person, you know, for the better, mostly. So I was like, I want to leave her a piece of who we are right now. Andrea and I, and, you know, everybody wrote her some letters, which she will find. That's amazing. And and beyond that, I think, you know, as, as someone who's not a parent yet, um, I also look at it and talk to my friends who become parents recently because I'm I'm 27. I'm in, I'm in that kind of age range where people are okay. really starting to begin to have kids. Um, yeah. And uh, every single friend I know that's had a kid basically said it, it's a it profoundly changed their life. And I think what would be interesting is that I think when you go back and do this ride and look at what you put in there, you'll be able to see 
how you've changed as a person. Because I, I, I think I've said the one thing I've heard from a lot of parents, especially my parents, talking to them who are now in their you know six early late fifties, early sixties. Um, basically, that you know they realize that even though we as kids learned a lot and developed, they realized they learned more about themselves in the process of raising kids than mm. the opposite, um, which is pretty profound when you think about it. Probably. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. I also wanted to show what the country was going to become. So I buried, you know, the time capsule in places that could have a significant change. Fascinating. So like there's a roundabout or a grocery yeah. store. <laughs> That'd be cool. Um, sorry. I, I have to, I have to, I have to dig up this roundabout, you know, or, or go underneath someone's house. Yeah. It makes for a good story. <laughs> so, um, and then I take your question. So do you have, do you have the locations just like the GPS coordinates of each one just saved down? Like, are you doing locators? Mm -hmm. Like, how are you like beacons or anything like the, that? Yeah. Just... I mean, it just, I have the coordinates saved down from different apps, you know, several cool. apps cause they all have different ones. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's they all have different coordinates, yeah. precision levels. Apple maps seems to be the most precise by the way. Yes. It's their own tool, their own software, and their own phone. The yep. Um, and uh, I also left man-made hints in the terrain. Got it. I love that. Yeah, which Smart. are not just leaves or branches. Yeah. And then left notes of how many steps to the north and to the south, kind of like an old, old treasure map. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Like so this concrete pillar will probably be here in 20 years. I'm going to use this as a marker. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so unless the, world, unless the world ends, then, you know, aliens might find your time capsule floating around in space you know who knows so who knows that, that'll be the beauty of it <laughs> so um you and andrea are currently in france um i'm guessing that's yeah. are, are you two u.s citizens or are you green card holders or yeah andrea andrea is a u.s citizen i'm a green card holder soon to become citizen fantastic um i hope you pass that test i've heard it's very very hard <laughs> sorry i is had to it? make that joke. no it's it's, it's um, yeah, okay. i i have i have friends from all over the world who've uh been able to pass with flying colors without studying for it but beyond that point so was there was there a decision to have the the baby in france minus the obviously potentially you know better healthcare system than the u.s was it a family thing was it a location <laughs> thing was it a it was a it was a family decision essentially just have you know i think we can we owe that to the grandparents because we, you know, we've been in in North America for the last twelve years, so yeah, like you, know, you guys can get that at least, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think that's such it's such yeah. a pivotal time for growth and development too. Uh, what do you mean? And for for the child, is what I'm saying. Like and like the the first few years having having the family around, having people around, having having oh, that no, kind no. of I wish community. We were staying. No, no, we're not staying. We're going oh, to back to it. Montana for that. She's born here. First few months. And then we're, we have to go back. Yeah. Understood. Um, so you yeah. live in Whitefish, Montana. Um, yep. There's going to be a couple questions based on this. So why Whitefish? You mentioned Jackson. Like there, there are so many towns. There's like, so like in, that, in the same Whitefish category, I put like Vail, Aspen, Durango, Jackson, Park City, you know, Whitefish. They're all, they're all very different, but they all have, um, you know, different, um, kind of points and counterpoints is why mm -hmm. white, why whitefish? You know, whitefish was the least um, developed in the past years. It's changed now in the, in the last two years, especially, but um, and it's, you know, every generation cries the same river. But when I really saw whitefish for the first time, 
I saw a lot of potential and I didn't, I didn't find any, I think every creator, you know, whether you're a photographer, writer, filmmaker, you, it's, it's good to attach yourself for branding reasons to a location. Mm-hmm. So simply as that, I was like, I don't know anybody who's from Whitefish. Who's Same. establishing whitefish? So for me, that was one of the reasons. Was like, well, you know, that's great because I, you know, besides that sort of vanity thing, that it was just nice to have an identity tied to a place. Uh, also, my dad had studied um, in Missoula and skied whitefish in 1965, 1967, 1968. So I have photos he shot there of the resort and the town and the old hotel. Uh, his buddies, some of his old buddies, are still here, and I know them. So to me, it feels like another home. Although I had never spent time there, I had grown up hearing all these stories about it. So that's when I first moved to LA. I was like, you know, the city is not for me really. I've been in the city for like the last seven, eight years, you know, Vancouver, um, British Columbia. And I was like, Mm -hmm. it's time for something different. So I thought about the places that I'm always looking for meaning, right? That's why also this this child is going to be born here in, in this event. Uh, region of friends is because that's where my family is from so it's 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 a quest for meaning and to me besides the point of whitefish being something that was had a lot of potential and still has um it's something that had a connection to me i love that and i think that for people that aren't aware um you know whitefish has uh not only incredible access to uh you know like glacier national parks right on the corner so, so to speak. Um, but also yeah, like, so speak. It, it just seems like you guys have untapped access in every season to some pretty epic, um, you know, outdoor sporting things like some great trail running. There's great mountain biking. There's great road biking in the winter. There's great skiing, whether you're doing uh, off piste on piste back country, cross country, you know, like it just seems like that's infinite outdoor playland also. Well, yes. Mountain activities are a bit more restrictive, I think in, in that area of Montana. Um, as my friend and photographer Ben Tibbetts put it very candidly uh, when he came to visit <laughs> he said uh, I'm going to misquote him but he said this in his Scottish accent which I'm not going to try to imitate but he said that Whitefish has the um, the access of Pakistan and the rules of Switzerland so <laughs> the access is gnarly meaning you have to it takes two days to get anywhere in the mountains because yeah, yeah. you have massive valleys and mm-hmm. there's no cable cars or roads that get you anywhere yeah and it has a rules of what you can do and not do in the national forest and the national park so yes and no i think it's nuanced i think for example the tetons have way better access agreed yeah i mean jackson is unlimited right so <laughs> i've done a lot of stuff <laughs> yeah. around there um but, but you, you think white so so in whitefish you and andrea created what you guys refer to as the nook which um <laughs> is this for people that haven't seen it it's this beautiful house right near the base of whitefish resort um and you guys also like rent out part of his airbnb right yes and yeah, that, and was, that it, was the intention since the beginning yeah cool and the intention to be kind of like to to create this place where i know you have like a big office in there and you 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 do a lot of your work obviously most of all your work out of there um, you just wanted to create kind of like a community center around this or was this something more intimate than that? Yeah, I used to have offices in town, um, which I sold recently because we weren't using them anymore. But um, I, yeah, the reason for the Nook and 
was just to have a base camp for especially for I mean I would be happy never owning a house in my life but for Andrea it was important to have a base camp yeah so that's what we just did yeah what's what's that what's okay so I, I have to dig deeper on that so you'd prefer to never own a house if you didn't have to what's is that desire just to always be traveling and moving around or yeah yeah not tie myself to to possessions although it's hilarious because I do like um, certain things like gear or you know cameras and, mm -hmm. and, and old motorcycles and, and bikes your defender so, yeah yeah I guess I like possessions <laughs> that uh, yeah. can enable me to do something sure but those are tools right Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I've never really been into the idea of home ownership, but now I'm not going to complain. I think it's a great thing. Yeah, um, especially with kids. Always, I, <laughs> yeah, yes, for sure, for sure. So I'm not dissing on that. But if I'd be single, you know, at my age and whatever, I, I don't think I'd own a house. No. Understood. I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think a lot of people do feel that way. I think I think also with the current price of houses, at least oh in God. this country. Um, like I have everywhere. I, I, I have more and more friends who they're like, Yeah, I listed my house at nine fifty and it sold for one point six. I'm like, What? What what how? <laughs> like, you know, that's crazy. It's cr like we're in this world of lunacy and I think I think there's many things spurning it. Like the Airbnb, the rental market is really helping push that. Um mm -hmm. you know, I think mm -hmm. you have just a lack of supply, especially in places like California that where people all want to live and um you know, like I spend a lot of time, a lot of my family is in New York city. So I, I'm just, I, I think it's normal when people are like, yeah, it's so hard to find rent and housing. I'm like, it isn't like this anywhere. And so when people suddenly start complaining, <laughs> I'm like, Oh, I guess, I guess people are used to just being able to go buy something. Um, it goes it back to, to the, that. Way, yeah. yeah. Cause wait, sometimes you'll, I'll be in like a Delta flight and I'll be, like be slipping through the channels and it'll be like HGTV. And then they'll be like, you know, we're, we're, we're a young couple, 24 years old, have a one-year-old kid. Um, we're looking for a six bedroom, four bath house with a pool and our budget's $80,000. And it's like, what? I don't <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, then, but then like they find a place in rural Texas that has this, you know, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, and I think that's the thing, right? It's like, there will always be locations in the world where people can buy property pretty cheaply. Right. Um, but I think that. Mm -hmm. I, I think we're having this movement of towards more urbanization, especially suburbia. Um, and I think that towns that were originally these small bespoke towns like Whitefish are now becoming developed with people that only want to live there year round because of remote work and they like the lifestyle and the balance, but also with just the sheer amount of wealth that's being created, especially by the 1% are saying like, oh, I'd love a ski house in Whitefish. I'd love a ski house in Jackson. you know. And I think that a lot of this is just spurning this push towards just making more right yeah it really sucks for the locals oh totally uh yeah I'm, I'm i'm lucky to be an owner but there is i mean it, it's reflect that problem is reflecting it's manifesting itself in restaurants not being able to hire people resorts not being able to hire people because people cannot live there yeah. because they can't find housing that you know oh great <laughs> you know if you make uh, even min if, even if you may make more than minimum wage, you're not going to rent anything in town. You're going to have to leave 40 minutes away. Then why would you come to Whitefish? You know, it's yeah, exactly. It to work, exactly. You know? So and I, yeah, I ran into that in Park City recently, where I was talking to my I think my my waitress at the table, and she was saying that she is like, uh, I was like, oh, how's your day? You know, simple conversation. And she's like, yeah, I just have an hour and a half drive home. And I was like, what? Why is that? She's like, oh, I live I live back in Salt Lake City, and with the traffic coming back off the mountain. Usually takes about an hour and a half to get home. 
And I was like, well, yeah. that, that's crazy. And she's like, yeah, I just, I can't remotely afford anything. Like he's like, she'll average house no. price up here is $3 million. You know, I'm a waitress, right? It's not going to work, <laughs> which is, which is uh, with you. I think that's why, you know, there are some towns, some people will call this socialism, whatever you want, but that, that guarantee, you know, basic housing for people that aren't millionaires and places like this. And I think it, I think that in, it's in the best interest of everyone, right? You know, it is. If, you can't have someone that I, I I find this funny is um I was at this in this pretty wealthy ski town recently. I'll keep it, you know, off not named for reasons why it'll become apparent in a second. But there's this really well known person in town and he was complaining that the line was so long at the local coffee shop and he was also the same person buying up all the old houses and turning them into new condos. And it's like, well, these are these are related. You know, like it's in the best interest of everyone to create houses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like these are not only not only your guests, but also like those houses you were purchasing from were houses that people could have afforded that worked at a coffee shop, you know, back in the day. They would have, that was the house they had. But because someone's just like, hey, your house that was worth $80,000 in 1990 is now worth $8 million because it's 100 feet from the, you know, the lift at Park City and it's one acre, you know, and no one's going to say no to, to selling that, right? Um, so I, I think that's, and also with you, I guess it works out because I'm sure that since you guys built that house, it's probably because you guys built it right before the really big boom in wife. So I'm sure your house has done very well. I <laughs> appreciate, appreciating wise. Um, so congrats <laughs> on that. <laughs> I don't even want to know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's, it's, I know, I know, it's gonna be, I know that's some, a special place to you and Andrea. It seems like a place you guys will keep probably forever. So, um, I don't think it's yeah, even yeah, on there's your... no intention to sell it. No. Um, so kind of like the last, the last bucket before I move into some more kind of open questions about you and your life, um, what inspired you to start? So wildest is, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it's essentially like you wanted to be a base camp, not to overuse that word, I've used it a few times, but like a, a, a place where people could learn useful skills, mainly centered around creative talents, right? Yep. What inspired yeah, what, the, the creation of that? It was simply that I really love learning and I've watched a lot of courses about different things in my life. And I still do to this day. And I thought the courses on photography were, I don't know, I wasn't very satisfied. So I was, I was very interested in learning how people I know did their work. And I also wanted to put out a workshop about how I do my work because people have had asked for it. Um, so I wrote my first workshop in 2017. It took me about a year of writing, you know, every morning for half an hour, an hour. Um, and I put it out there and turns out a lot of people wanted to buy it. So, which was a surprise. I was very happy to see that interest. Yes. And I was like, you know what? There's something here. People want to hear these things. So let's, Let's make this real. Let's bring them stuff that they can't get in school. Absolutely. And it also kind of goes off one of my big beliefs, which is copied from a guy named uh, Jack Butcher. And he talks about, you know, build once, sell twice, which I think is the best thing about these kind of educational systems is that you not only get to create value at a lower price than going to some expensive institution um, for individuals trying to learn a specific skill, but like, you know, if, if you have people or especially on Instagram that have looked up to you and, and admire your work forever, they're like, wow, I can actually like, you know, the person I've wanted to, you know, emulate, so to speak, is is now offering, you know, me at a very fair price, you know, access to his, his inner workings. I think that's invaluable. I think that's the, I think that's the future of education I want to see, right? Which is just like not these 
ivory towers where you spend, you know, a, you know, the cost of a, a small house to get a piece of paper and, and, and basically are good at memorizing, but, you know, people kind of go deep in the information that they want to learn. And it's something that is democratized, easy to access, affordable. And, and there's truly like, you know, people are learning what they want to learn, you know? Yeah. And I think it can be even be pushed further, right? Because you can go beyond the format of the workshop into documentary. Uh, one show that I thought did that really well is like the Bill Gates Netflix show. I thought that he did a good job at yeah. at showing the way his, his mind worked. And it's one thing to watch a workshop from somebody. It's another thing to spend 10 days with this person. Correct. Uh, and I think that's where most of the learning comes from, at least from the, pe- the, the students that come and do the in-person workshop. It's very different what they get out of it. Um, so, yes, the, I'd like to bring the documentary approach to online and, and I so, think, yeah. yeah, I think you bring up Inside Bill's Brain is an excellent point. It's one of the better documentary, like docu-series, I guess you'd call it, I've seen in a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, it was very intimate, right? It was like, how many times have you seen Bill Gates sit on the stage or in a talk show talk about something? But this is just sure. like, no, we're going to open, he's going to open up his mind. Um, yes, well, let's go walk with him. That was really well done. I, I think, so you also read a lot too as well, don't you? Yeah. Um, and, and I was reminded of that because, because Bill, Bill Gates, obviously, you know, he's a, he's a bibliophile. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. He, re, he, I love how he carries, for people that haven't seen the show, he carries around this tote bag, it's an L.L. Bean tote bag with his name engraved on it. Um, it's like $49. <laughs> you can buy it at L.L. Bean in Maine, right? Um, and he carries around like something between like 18 to 25 books, all hardcover or softcover, whatever's, you know, the cheapest at the time. <laughs> yeah. And just blows through them, right? Which is. Yeah. It's impressive. Yeah. Um, so is there any books recently that you've read that you that really kind of stuck with you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you want there to mention is, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There is Breath. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, Breath Who's that by? by uh, James Nelson. James Nestor. Hmm. Uh, okay. I'm probably butchering his name. Sorry, James. But um, yeah, Breath, it's the... It's really the reason of why we breathe and how to breathe correctly to enhance performance and longevity. So fascinating. As somebody who's interested in sports and you know aspires to be a, a weekend athlete, I thought that it really was really helpful right up and anything that sort of touches on increasing health, I'm interested in. So I think breath was one of those. Uh, I stumbled another upon another obscure one about the uh, it's it's in French. It seems like it's not even for sale anymore. <laughs> it's in the <laughs> library behind me here in this house. Um, so, which is about the purifying Tibetan breath and hmm. concentration. So yeah, that right now that's that's my latest kick is these sort of mind and body altering books. And as a reminder to everyone listening, I, I, I link all the things we've talked about in the show notes down below so people can quickly click on links. I'll, I'll find the books and try to find them online. And link them yeah, out. I don't know if you can find the second one. I'll help second you. one, no. But uh, I appreciate that. Um, uh, in, in regards to, uh, to to kind of breathing and thinking and mindfulness, are you someone that meditates? Mm, yeah, I've been trying to, yeah. I've been trying to in the mornings um when doing some breathing exercises yeah you know half an hour yeah much but enough enough that i can get into some sort of concentration at least i try to i think 
you know, meditation is a vehicle to concentration. So I'm just trying to increase my concentration levels like we were talking about before. What I'm social sure. media computers have done to our concentration levels. <laughs> yeah, out the window. Oof. So kind of moving on, um, is there something you believe in that most don't? Is there something you believe in that most don't? Well, right off the bat, I'm sure there is something, but I, what I've learned recently, after reading a book called La France Sous Nos Yeux, which uh, you know, I really encourage you to read since you're, you have good, good French reading, um, it's the it's the, it's kind of the history of the of France in the last fifty years and the social changes mm -hmm. that have happened, in you know what areas have developed themselves, all the changes that you've noticed the last fifteen years, but couldn't put a, your finger on what exactly happened. That's all explained, and it's really touched on 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 what's happened to society. So I learned through that book that. Actually, whatever I think and whatever I do is what most people do. <laughs> so, yeah, it's really taught me that, you know, when you're in your 20s, not to, you know, <laughs> uh, reference your age, I think, but when sure. you're in your 20s, yeah. I feel like you think you're so unique and different. Uh, and I feel like after reading that and, and learning, um, I'm not that different to most people. I think we all have these scripts that the media give us. And perhaps one thing that I've recently been discussing with a friend, uh, Jay, is that I want to be careful uh, in, in terms of beliefs, you know, and something that I've picked up is that there is the um, a polarization of opinions. So it's kind of like binary, yes or no. Uh, Trump, not Trump. Mask, no mask. Vax, no vax. You know, it's sure. A or B. Uh, not to get into any of these debates because yeah. I'm not very interested. But <laughs> yeah, the, 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 re the thing is, the thing is that there is perhaps a profit profitability increases for certain outlets or certain companies or certain whatever enterprises when we simplify the debates, and that's something I want to be careful about. You know, myself and when I talk to people, it's like, are we being, you know, sort of fed this? This very simple yes no debate, green, red, black, white, um, and are we yeah are we just buying into it without even thinking about it? So that's it. I think people are much more subtle than that. You know, you and I are much hmm. more subtle than one opinion, right? Sure. So perhaps that'll be one thing to start. Off. And I think that the 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 binary debate really is detrimental to a lot of people because I think that a lot of the generations that you know are below me, so I guess Gen Z and below, are basically taught that everything is like one side or the other. But you know, I grew up in this world mm -hmm. where like there's there's not just two, there's not just three, there's like hundreds, right? It's I think that mm -hmm. teaching teaching kids especially that it's not mask or no mask. It's what are the other options? There's always in between, you know. There's and and I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that. When you have these very polarizing issues, you have people talking about very different things. Like I think in America, one of those polarizing issues is guns, right? It's like to own guns, yeah, to not own guns, one, to yeah. ban them, but not ban them. And I think that one thing I've noticed is that um, I, 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 it's, it's, it's so strange. It's like, I don't know how to describe this, but I feel like one side is arguing, and not, we're not going to get into this, obviously, but like, I, I think that one side is arguing about 
um, you know, like making sure people that are mentally unstable don't have access to weapons. And the other side is arguing that we should have guns if a tyrannical ruler tries to come and take over our land, right? It's like, they're, they're both about guns, but they're very different topics from very, very different perspectives, right? Yeah, um, it's easy to get lost. In, in, in and I think there are a lot of, like, I think COVID's a lot about that too, right? And I think there's a lot of examples, especially things that are politicized nowadays to the Hill because that's profitable, right? CNN doesn't make money if there's no, 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 arguments right <laughs> so mm -hmm. um but but i think that i i always encourage people to think like you know first you know when you're talking with someone make sure you're on the same page right hear someone right if, if, if you're not willing to change your opinion given new information then it's not worth talking about right um yeah we <laughs> even just listen right yeah. <laughs> we even just listen right as a society i think i think with with something we talked about a lot which is this attention span like dampening over time i think that in in regards in relation to that as well you know like people have lost the ability to listen to each other right we just we don't we don't want the book we want the tweet we don't want the tweet we want i i you know we want nothing yeah, yeah. right <laughs> so yeah. it's it's the spark notes of spark notes right um you know like <laughs> tell me everything you know about this one thing in two sentences but i only have 30 seconds so please hurry up right now <laughs> it's not yeah, it's yeah not it's not um so kind of going off that let's let's talk about you know, something very complimentary to books in my mind, um, music. Um, do you play instruments yourself? No, no, I really wish though. It's, um, yeah, it, I listen. I make up for the playing by listening way too much music. Sure. Do you have a certain genre or artist or someone that really kind of catches your eye that, that it really sits at the top of your, you know, most played or um, common playlist? Mm. There, oh, you know what? Let's do this exercise let's go uh top 2021 on spotify um <laughs> uh, because you know general i've never been very much into defining because i with photography it's the same i don't want to categorize work people's work Correct. so with music yeah. i'm going to assume it's the same yep. i try not to categorize their work and indie alternative and electronic and it's yeah. so much more subtle again exactly i i care more about individuals and also like some of my favorite musicians have like switched genres throughout the years right and done amazing sure. work in different areas and i think that's as an artist is right and i think that's why when people are like what's your favorite genre i was like i don't care about that i want to know about like who are you listening to right oh yeah so yeah i'd say the, the top in the top of the last year i mean young the giant was there indie give it a category <laughs> um drama of course always close to my heart um these this formation of germans called quang carousel or like um and obviously obviously i can't go without mentioning so the nesso yes uh, that'd be the sort of the moment you know uh and obviously this french uh french hip-hop artist called Ozen. i've actually heard them before <laughs> When I was in France. Yeah, so I that, that's my top right there. Yeah, um, someone that I think you'd enjoy. Um, have you heard of an artist named Kishibashi? Mm, sounds familiar. Yeah, he he did the he did the soundtrack for um the fourth phase, which was Travis Rice and yep. Um mm -hmm. and and he has a couple of popular songs that are that have been used. I think Chris has used some of his songs in some of his films, and they've been all around. But I think I think just based on the artist you mentioned, I think he's right up your alley. So I'll send you some stuff after this, but. Yes, I mean, um, always. Um, so I'm sure you've had many memorable adventures over the years or even in the last year, maybe in the last few months or maybe in the last few weeks um, <laughs> based on who you are. But is, is there one yeah. that like that 
sits in your head, like that lives rent free in your head that you'll think about on like a long run or in the, in the bathtub or something like that, where you just like, it was like something that really had a profound impact in your life. They tend to be these, uh, you know, in terms of, it's different. In terms of impact, it's the solo missions that have the most impact mentally because you have time to think. Right. So like doing the Stevenson trail last fall, um, so it was very much like that. Um, and then there's the ones that you do with a group of people that are awesome. You know, we're like cycling across Montana uh, with Isaac Johnston uh, two summers ago was one of those. And it was more like a shared experience. So, yeah, I'd say these two are really, really going to be with me for a long time. But I really don't forget about any. Like, I look at the photos and I was like, yeah, that was really cool. Well, that was really hard. So you're someone like Chris, and I've talked to him about this at ad nauseum, um, that like photographs are in your mind reminders of feelings you had during a given experience, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. I can reference dates with the, the photograph. They're just the blocks of my memory. Yeah, and I think it's, it's, an, it's a beautiful ability. And I think that, so I guess a, a question I don't think I've ever asked before, but when you look back at some of your work and you look at the way that so I think that, you know, there's many, there's many dimensions, right? There's, there's not only the, the conditions that you chose to shoot a certain place and whether it was sunset or sunrise or, you know, golden hour or which I love, well, those are synonymous, but you know, like uh, winter or summer or mm-hmm. um, like how it was edited, how you've kind of went through. So have you noticed over time that you were like, wow, I really edited it this way, which is surprising. So I must've, you know, th- I, I think I was feeling this or this is the experience I had. So I want to make sure I capture that in the edit. Are you, are you someone that does that? For sure. hundred percent. I don't think an edit should be accurate to reality. I think it should be your representation. Um, we just have different tolerance levels for what looks real after that. Right. There's a limit for me. Uh, but definitely when I look at photos from a few years ago, I'm like, well, yeah, the edit is very dreamy or it's very bright and obviously I want to go and edit it again, but I have to force myself to leave it as it was. Yeah. And I, I think because that was just a piece, a piece of place in time and it should just be left alone. And, and your work that speaks out to me the most is that your, your ability to capture this array of colors at dusk or dawn or the edge of, you know, the, the sun coming or leaving the sky is always kind of, I, I don't think any other photographer I've seen does that as well as you do. And that's like my, no, my huge kudos to you is like, you know, whenever I think of your work, like the first image that comes to mind is I think it's, it might even be Mont Blanc or it's somewhere in the Alps. And it, there's just this like beautiful, like blue to purple violet, like cascading, yeah, yeah. Be- you know what I'm talking about, right? Just like, it's just this immense color where it's like the mountain is cool and beautiful and white, but like you just, you're just gobsmacked the sky, right? <laughs> At the right time. And so kind of going off capturing this, right? So I know, I know you've been shooting Canon and, and are one of their photographers and, and you've been working alongside yeah. Canon for a very long time. So you, you know, you sit on this bleeding edge of photography where you get to test out new things, I'm sure, before they come out. Um, so I, I guess the next question is, what, what are you working with now that makes you excited to like pick up a camera? Like what, what gear kind of, what, which what tools in your belt really make you excited to use? The yeah, but this is a great question. I really enjoy using long lenses and telephotos. The longer, the better. And because so it really yeah. allows for a different vision. 
And and you've been I'm guessing you're pretty much all on the RF system now, so the Canon mirrorless. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And so five or six. R5 or 6, and then R3, which I actually haven't played with. I shoot the R5, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, But the... So Canon seems to have released a couple truly telephoto lenses for the RF. So I think it was like the 400 and the 600. Very good ones. Um, You use those to shoot the reindeer photos, right? The 100-500, yeah. Okay, interesting. Brilliant. Um, So I guess my question is, so you're someone who travels a lot, and a lot of your expeditions are human-powered and not running out of cars, so would you ever consider bringing one of those massive 400, 600 uh, telephoto lenses on a, some kind of self-supported journey? Yeah. One day, I, I probably have to one day. I'm trying not to. But yeah. Jeremy, for example, to reference Jeremy Villet, a wildlife mm-hmm. photographer, to categorize him, um, he he was carrying a 600 to 8, which is a massive thing. Like yeah. the size, size of a bazooka. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. And he he was carrying that you know around his neck every day for 10 hours so it's possible oh yeah um you know a lot of my friends who are videographers who do a lot of stuff down in uh sub-saharan africa they're they're carrying around you know they're constantly schlepping 60 pelican cases full of batteries and lenses and av and you you know it's like a a whole other dimension um so the next question and in in that kind of net logical step is that you know what is next in the photography world from a tool perspective? Like what, what really excites you in terms of like this? Cause we're, we're seeing this massive advent where I feel like five years ago to now, like we've had this massive increase in ability of cameras. Like the, if I gave you an art, if I, if I what, took a time machine and jump back five years ago to 2017 and handed you an R5, you'd be like, what is this? This is wild. And nowadays we're like, this yeah, is, like, this is what you expect. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think is the next logical thing that's, that's in line of what's to happen? Well, what really interests me most is something that's going to get more light in low light. I'm interested in the limits of low light uh, just because it matches what I seek to do. Uh, and I'm currently working on a, on a low light series for the entire year. Um, and yeah, I've been pushing the limits of the R6 in low light, which is better than the R5. It has less pixels. Mm-hmm. Uh, very impressive, but there. I think there is the next few years are going to be crazy with that, with the low light capabilities. Um, but beyond the technical technological improvement, I think a camera is what puts me on or off. You know, I'm sure. out. I got my camera. Okay, I'm on. I'm doing stuff. I'm shooting, and it's it's also an identity. And I find that. You know, once you pick up your camera, your real camera, you become part of this group of people, of like-minded people who are just out there trying to make the best shot they can. And I think it's a beautiful thing. We don't talk about it enough. You know, we we're talking about how phones are, are dominating before the the podcast are dominating the the scene, um, but cameras really um, there are different things. Sure, there's a phone can take a good photo, but it doesn't make you it doesn't make you a photographer. I think it's really having this commitment to having your camera and being ready to use it and being in the mode when you're taking photos that makes a difference. Also, there's a love of craft involved too. Um, something I know you put a lot of emphasis on yourself personally. Yeah. I mean, if you're out there trying to get the best photo you can, you're going to do your best to use the best gear you can afford. Simple. Yeah. I think that's, that's, you know, that's, I think that's the, the Casey Neistat way, right? Where just like he famously, uh, you know, he took his one-year-old son to New York and 
bought a $10,000 video camera with his $10,000 credit limit card and realized that he's never gonna be able to pay it off for at least a year or two and said like, this is what I need to, to, to do it. And he would end up being successful. And that was like kind of how he wrote his book. He's like, I'm just going to put myself in the situation where it's like, I won't even can't walk fail. in the room. Yeah, I can't fail. So, um, which has worked for a lot of people, including myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, getting close to your, um, you know, outer time limit here, I want to get you out of here on a couple rapid fire questions. Um, so these questions could be answered in as few or many words as you wish. Um, and you were allowed to pass yeah. on any question. Um, so the first one is if you had a billion dollars that you couldn't spend on yourself or your family, what problem would you try and solve? Well, even if I could spend them on myself and my family, I would still have 99.9% .9 of it left. <laughs> yeah. Because I don't know what I would do with the money. But um, I would um, I would work on absorbing all the CO2 of the atmosphere. That's a fantastic, uh, fantastic uh, mission. Literally, I think it's very interesting. Yeah. I think that's what yeah. I, yeah I, I spend a lot of time working with a lot of startups um, and my kind of recent the biggest mm -hmm. uh, category has been like climate tech and or aerospace tech. And there's actually a lot of work in agriculture right now um, about like utilizing mm. different uh, cover crops during non uh, like farm utilization seasons. And not only does it help uh, protect the soil from erosion and different storms, but it also helps keep it nutrient rich in the off season. But the best thing about it is this cover crop also absorbs CO2 because it's like it's a plant. And there was this crazy stat I read mm. that basically said that if every... Um, if every piece of farmland on earth utilized rotational cover crops so that there was basically cover on the ground 90% a year or more, which is, which is a big ask, right? Um, but assuming yeah, yeah. that was the, the given, you could reabsorb all carbon dioxide ever put into the atmosphere by, since the industrial revolution, uh, by humans um, in, under uh -huh. 30, in under 30 years, um, which is crazy, right? Um, yeah. And so you kind of say like, what if we did half, right? 60 years, like that's a long time, but also like, it's, it's not like you have to wait 60 years and suddenly it makes it all better. Like this is slowly getting better over time. Yeah. Right. So it just it, shows that yeah, there's so much we can problem, do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that as technology progresses, like we're going to have people using carbon scrubbers and different things. And it's, it's only inevitable for someone figures out a way to turn the carbon dioxide from our atmosphere into some useful form of energy or building material. That's already happening. I think there's this firm, somewhere in, I think it's a Danish firm, because of course the Danes did it, but um, that are helping turn carbon dioxide into building materials for sustainable housing, um, which is like the ultimate mm. like cyclical thing, right? And also like you have yeah. a lot of companies building things that absorb CO2 over the lifetime, life their lifetime, right? Oh yeah, I mean, that would be a, like a, a get out of jail card. Yeah. Uh, because it's so hard for all of us to change our behavior, but you know, there's always, it's kind of cliche, but there's always things we can do, right? So Correct um is is there is is there a story that your family or parents like to tell about you uh maybe when you were younger <laughs> man um probably all the time they got <laughs> probably all the times that uh, teachers complained about my behavior <laughs> <laughs> you want to give us an example <laughs> um she there's a lot but essentially i taught a friend how to build a like a, a some sort of little mini smoke bomb <laughs> back awesome. in back in in middle school yeah, yeah you know it's nothing too dangerous sure but it does a lot of smoke yeah 
and I taught him how to do it. I was like, but somebody else taught me how to do it. I was like, bro, don't you ever, you know, do that anywhere else, but you know, in the woods when nobody can see you. <laughs> and he had the good idea to do it in the middle of uh, school. <laughs> and uh, yeah. And, and so you were the architect, so. Like, well, yeah, I was like, you taught him how to do it. So yeah, anyways, my parents got called in, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, 12 years old. <laughs> that's one of those. And, and do you think that's just because you always were, were curious and, and you just kind of had a, a, like you, your, your, your desire to learn about the world outpaced what you were given in school or was it just a distaste for authority or what was it? I just, I just didn't have brothers or sisters. So I was spending time go. with, that's it. with people with, <laughs> yeah, that's it really. Yeah. I was spending time with people who were older than me usually. Yeah. So Understood. Yeah, they were doing different things. Uh, so if you could send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, uh, where would that location be? And what would the push notification say? Whoa, say that again about the location. Uh, uh, yeah. So, so basically if you were to send a single push notification to everyone's phone in a given area, what would it say? And mm. where would that be? <laughs> This is where you want to come up with a very intelligent answer. Yeah. Well, all I can think is saying something stupid and funny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, oh man, it's a good one. Let me think about it. Really. We can co- we can come back to it if you'd like. You know, um, it's very timely, but it would probably be everybody in the vicinity of the Kremlin <laughs> in Moscow. It'd be yeah. like. You know, please reconsider. Yeah, just be, or just be considerate, or just just have have just faith in humanity. Just, yeah, just reconsider. Period. Yeah. Just reconsider <laughs> your decisions. It's never too that be yeah. my first notification, but it's very timely. Uh, that's what comes up. And uh, so, I guess this is now becoming more into your life um, as in the next few days. But um, do you have any uh, advice for your future grandchildren's generation? Assuming you do have grandchildren. Advice. Hmm. So it's tricky with advice, you know? Yeah. Everyone wants to give it and no one wants to take it. Right. So, yeah. Well, uh, so I've been trying to never give it. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, it's really hard to take it. Uh, although I like getting advice, but it's just from key people. So, um, cause you can get advice from everybody, just like you said, but you can only, you also have a group of people who really influence you. So, um, my grandchildren, I would tell them that they, it would make me very happy if you were to work on the land. Yeah. If you got into food systems and agriculture. Is that something that you want to spend more time in moving forward? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's really the solution to a lot of our problems. I agree because you know it helps cure the climate issue and the food issue and the economy issue. Yeah, <laughs> right. It's, yeah. It's, it's I'll a... just tell them, you know, we need you there. I mean, they not we, they need you there. So that would yeah. make me very happy. You know, the I'm sure you've seen the movie Interstellar, the Christopher Nolan film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. And there's that one point where it's like the world doesn't need more engineers; it needs more farmers, right? And I think that we're getting yep. we're, we're almost at that point. We don't need more influencers and. Uh, you know, handbag models, you know, whiskey models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's hard to just go and get a farm and start doing it. It's really hard. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I've worked with a bunch of agricultural startups over the years. And 
most of them fail because it's just like it's 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 twofold it's like the the technology it's it needs a lot of buy-in i think the biggest the biggest thing that fails is is two types of buy-in it's it's all the same kind of failure it's one from a governmental perspective because they can really put a lot of money towards research and development and spreading mm-hmm. and, and and also policy and also part two like farmers are usually very traditional old school group with very mm-hmm. set ways and convincing them oh, yeah. that you know, this new style of rototilling is going to help the planet, but may slightly decrease their yield over the next 10 years. Like no farmer wants to do that, you know, right? So it's like this idea of like, we need to all buy in together, you know, and I think that only happens through policy or incentives. Like, okay, the government will cover the the, the difference. And then that comes into yeah, point where it's like, share the risk. yeah, should it be the government's job to do that? Or maybe I think that's the argument for one of these startups I was working with, where it's like, we're going to take the risk as a private individual and say, hey, we see the value in this from a private perspective, just for everyone's sake. We're going to sell carbon credits based on your land as our, our way of making money off this. And we're going to compensate you and pay more than you would have actually been able to get from the land mm-hmm. by doing less, just because you That's are better. able to consume that much more carbon. And that company can sell those carbon credits to offset that difference. And there's a, a bit of, you know, carbon credits are still kind of a jabberwocky, like a catch-22, yeah. but, you know, I think I yeah. think it's in the right direction, right? Um, so as someone with, you know, like you, um, with, I would say you're definitely in the category of someone with near unlimited resources when it comes to travel and being able to shoot whatever you want. Cause you could probably pitch to Canon or a different brand and, and go on a trip. Is, is, is there one, is there one place or maybe it's an animal or a location or an event or a time of year that that's really been kind of like the, the thing that you've always wanted to do that you still haven't done yet? Hmm. It's a good question. There is so much out there. Um, but I don't think I, I think that way. Uh, because most of the things I wanted to do, I've done them. Uh, you know, if, it, if I'm serious about something, I'm going to make it happen. So I will probably give you a different answer in a month, right? When there's <laughs> new ideas. So there isn't a totally. trip to mind that's like, I've always wanted to do it because I'm a believer. If I want to do it, I just should just go do it now. Yeah. Right. So it's, if there's something, it's already in the planning stage. <laughs> and um, I, love that. It's pro- I, pro- I want to cycle across the U.S., for example. Uh, and that there's a concrete idea, but I want to do it. I'm already planning. Yeah. I just have to manage how to do it while being a good dad, which is another yeah. question. Yeah, actually, uh, a, f- a mutual friend of ours, Aaron Brimhall, is about to do that uh, next month. So, um, what, what is he going to do? Is he going to cycle across the U.S.? Yeah, he's doing it with um, uh, this, this group. Um, he's going from Miami to LA. He's never, he's, he's not a cyclist either. Like, you know, you, Chris and I, like I used to race and I, I, I spent a lot of time on a bike and I know you do too. Same with Chris is really kind of this meteoric rise to cycling, but you know, oh, yeah. Aaron, Aaron is an incredibly fit individual. Like one of the fittest people oh, yeah. I know, period. But I told him, I was like, man, this is a lot, but he is, he, the thing about Aaron is that he has an insane mental, um, drive. Like if, if he wakes in the morning and be like, I'm going to cycle across the United States, like he'll do it. You know, like he's, he's not one to kind of like let himself stop and he's someone where he's like, yeah. And I think that's cool. But uh, I was going to say, I I need to find out more. He put it on a story casually, like, yeah, I'll spend 30 days riding across the country with, I think Fazari or Ferrazzi, whatever that bike company is, um, is, is doing some kind of thing and is is raising money or is is a friend. I don't, I don't know. I'll I'll find out more. Um, but, uh, yeah, when you do that, let me know. Um, because I've mm-hmm. been wanting to do it for a long time. So if you're looking for more people to join you, I'm, I'll happily, uh, I'll happily jump on that bandwagon. Yeah. Unless you were doing it solo. So. No, no, 
as making it into an event. Maybe an event, and, and I think also like I've learned uh, having a sag wagon, someone riding a minivan with you know water and food and just you know extra wheels and tires and tubes is always always a good idea, especially when you're trying to do uh, speed and distance, right? Um, maybe yeah, that's what the debate, the, the debate comes. You know, it's like, do you want to be self-supported or not? And I, yep. I'm always more interested in in doing it uh, self-supported with like by fair means, but it yep. takes more time, right? So Correct. I'll strive yep. to do it self-supported because i'm yeah. not in it for the performance sure. i'm in it for the people i'm going to come across and the things i'm going to see really and if you go fast you sadly don't have time to see any correct yeah and i, I so i'm always inspired do you ever familiar with this thing called leave it on the road no so it happened back I, I it this is one i, I still this is one of those things that lives rent free in my mind um <laughs> so l-i-o-t-r um, they was these two guys from Portland, Oregon, and they rode from Portland, Oregon to, I believe, Boston, Massachusetts, uh, to raise money for, um, colon cancer. I believe it was like, maybe it was mm. prostate or colon cancer mm -hmm. and they did it supported. So it was two guys and they basically were fully sponsored. So they had the custom kits from Rafa cause it was Portland, you know, um, mm -hmm. they had, uh, yeah. these custom steel bikes. They had, um, like the athletic did their socks, you know, like it was, it was this whole kitted out Damn. thing, but they, but they had. Um, one of the Rafa staff photographers followed up along for a month. And so you had these incredible photos of this journey and not only like seeing the amount of pain and suffering these guys were going through, but sure. also like the journey, but it's amazing because you can actually still, they, the Instagram page is still live. Hasn't been, it, they haven't touched it and you can actually scroll through the journey. They did leave it on the road. Um, and it's amazing. Not only like the shape these guys got in, but the experience they've oh, had yeah. and they, and they were all writing along the way, these very personal anecdotes. Cause I think they'd all, I think both guys had like either lost someone or had family members battling, um, like, mm. you know, terminal cancer at the time. So there was a very like personal journey for them, but they raised a, a, a hell of a lot of money for, for charity, which I think is always a good idea. Right. So if you're doing something like that, like do it for the story. Um, but if you can also, you know, benefit someone that might not be as fortunate as you in the meantime, might as well. Right. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. Steep. Cool. Well, um, as I said, when you do that, let me know. I'm down to join. Um, otherwise anything else that you want to, uh, sure. mention on the way out? Um, yeah, my next, my first ever magazine, my Zin, self-published Zin Adventure Buddies, the ride across Montana. So mm -hmm. this is the story of the gravel ride across Montana. He's going to yep. come out in April. Fantastic, and I'll and I'll so, make sure I'll work yeah. with you to to link that below. So I'll put that first, so anyone can go ahead and pre-order that um, and purchase it if it's if yeah. it's already uh, listening to this one. It's already out. Oh yeah, yeah. The link is going to be adventurebuddies.xyz. That's easy, and I'll edit. It's linked below to anyone else looking. Um, but otherwise, you know, Alex, thank you so much for your time today. Um, congrats on the upcoming birth of your first child, and uh, thank you. Good luck on everything else. Thanks, Rob. That was a treat. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too, man. Bye. I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the Holocene podcast. As a reminder, you can find show notes and anything else you might have missed at holocene.one. That's O-N-E. And you can find Alex online at Alex Stroll. Stroll spelled S-T-R-O-H-L. As always, my name is Rob Auchincloss, and you can find me online at Rob Auchincloss, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.